Hey, good morning, Grace Hill. Good to see all of you. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if we haven't met yet, uh, I had to jet out of service really quick last week. Um, And so uh, I'll be in the lobby uh, today. I'd just love to be able to meet you. For those of you that are going to be joining the table today, excited to get lunch with you right after service. I heard Mel say we're going to be down in the blue room, so excited to spend that time with you. And I just want to repeat what she already said, too, which is if you're new here and you're interested in getting in the table, just jump in today. We're going to be meeting from 1130 to 1230 sharp because the school kicks us out at 1230. Um, And so we won't go late. And what we do in the table, we just talk about who we are as a church and what we believe God has called us to, what our heart is here at Grace Hill Church, and then answer any questions that you have. And we do that for three weeks in a row. Different, we have, they're different sessions, so you attend all three. And so if you want to get started today, go meet us in the blue room down the Grace Hill Kids Classrooms. Just follow the signs. Meet us there at 1130 uh, right after our service, and we would love to have you join us. And if you're new at Grace Hill or if you've been coming for a while and you just have not gotten plugged in at Grace Hill, this is your next step to really understand who we are as a church and also to get plugged in. So just really encourage you uh, to jump into that. Um, It's been uh, such a great time uh, to have these lunches, to get to know people, um, and so I'm excited for that. If you have a Bible, John chapter 5, uh, Gospel of John chapter 5, that's the fourth book in the New Testament, and that's where we'll be uh, reading from in just a few moments. Um, there's a psychologist, her name is Carol Dweck, Dr. Carol Dweck. She wrote a book, really popular book, probably uh, 15 years ago, called Mindset. And it's just a book on the impact of your mindset on your learning and development. It's a really fascinating book if you like to geek out on stuff like that. But in this book, she talks about a study that she conducted. And what she did is she took a group of high schoolers who were advanced in math, all right, and put them together in a group. And then she took another group of high schoolers that were average, in their math skills, in their math scores, and put them in a group together. And then what she did is she gave each of these groups uh, similar or actually the exact same math equations to solve. And they had to solve them together as a group. And if they got the math equation correct, they solved it, then they'd be given another equation that would be more difficult, and it would just keep going. The equations would increasingly get more difficult. In time, But here was the variable she introduced into this study. The teacher that was overseeing the advanced students was instructed to encourage and praise the students when they got the problem correct. She was instructed, this teacher, to praise them for their intellect. So if they got the problem right, they, were, they would receive encouragement. The teacher that was overseeing the students average group of students was instructed to encourage and praise the students for their hard work, for trying really hard, and to praise them and to tell them that as they try hard, even though the problem is hard, they are growing and they're learning in their math skills. So they ran this test, and what's fascinating, and you can read about the study in her book, what's fascinating is that the group of average students ended up getting farther 
in the equations as they got increasingly difficult than the group of the advanced students. And her whole conclusion and the thing she talks about in her book is the power of our mindset. That even though we might have knowledge, our mindset controls how we use that knowledge. So, so what's mindset? Mindset is your kind of set of attitudes about a particular situation or whatever it is going on in your life. And what she found is that the students in the advanced category wanted to play it safe. They were praised for uh, getting the equation right. They didn't want to risk getting it wrong, and so they lost motivation to keep going, while the students in the average category had a different mindset, what she calls a growth mindset, where they had the motivation to keep going and working hard and work together to keep going. They had different mindsets. And it's fascinating how our mindset can kind of override the knowledge that we have. Now, why do I say that? We're not going to be talking about mindsets today or psychology. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because your mindset will cause you to make decisions and carry beliefs that does not align with the knowledge that you have in your head. And I believe there are lots and lots and lots of Christians in the church today who have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, a lot of knowledge about Jesus Christ. They know the gospel. They can teach the gospel as well as anyone else. But they have a mindset that does not allow them to live in the freedom of the knowledge they have about Jesus. Their mindset restricts them from living in the freedom of the gospel. I mean, did the advanced group of students have the knowledge to be able to solve those equations? More so than the average group. Well, obviously so. But their mindset prevented from them from being able to do it. We're in a sermon series called Stories of Belief where we're looking at these various stories in the Gospel of John, these historical accounts about Jesus and these signs that he gave, these very specific signs that were, what they were for is to point to who he was and why we should believe in him and what he was doing when he came here for his ministry. And so this is week four, and we've studied several so far in the Gospel of John. And Mel, I feel like I'm stepping on your computer, so I'm just going to move that. Um, don't want to crush that. All right. Uh, so we've been in the Gospel of John, and now we're going to be in John chapter 5. And the question that we're asking as we look at each of these stories is, who is Jesus? What is he trying to say to us through what he's doing And why should we believe in him? Let's go to John chapter 5 and read. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. And one of the themes you may have picked up in this series is we've read a lot of very familiar passages, familiar stories about Jesus, and we've discovered that there's a whole lot going on underneath the surface. I think we're going to see the same thing today. Let's read John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Let's stop there for just a second, because I think what I want to do is I want to dig into the mindset of this man who was by the pool. Right, we have this pool, five Roman colonnades. It's beautiful. It's at the sheep gate. So there's walls around Jerusalem and there's different gates. So this is a particular gate there. And what we have here is a, is a man sitting there who, who cannot walk. He's paralyzed and he can't get into the pool. And no one will help him get into the pool. But we see that he does have a particular mindset now, this is the default religious mindset. We've talked about this a lot. A default religious mindset that most Christians have, I think, that most religions in the world have. And this is the default religious mindset is, God can heal me. He can bless me. He can save me. I can have his favor. I just need to figure out how to do it. God can heal me. God can save me. I just need to figure out how to get into the pool. But no one will help me, and I can't. And so you see the order. I believe that God is powerful and supernatural and able to do these things, but I've got to figure out how to unlock that. And this mindset's in every religion. It's actually also in secularism. We believe the world promises us this stuff. Right? We believe the world can promise us hope and, uh, and, and healing and, and riches and happiness and joy and fulfillment. We just got to figure out how to hustle hard enough to get it. Or we believe that we just got to have the right circumstances come my way in order to get it. It's the default mindset. What do I need to do to receive the prize? But I want to dig into this text a little bit. If you were observant as we were reading you noticed that we went from, as we were reading verses one to seven, we read verse three and then went straight to verse five. Did y'all see that? And if you look down at your Bible, your Bible probably goes verse three and then verse five. Where's verse four? It's not there. Well, most Bibles, I know my Bible does, I have an ESV version, puts a footnote right there. All right, so sometimes it's good to read those footnotes. And that footnote is going to tell you that verse 4 has been omitted from most of your Bibles. And there's a reason for that. It's because, you know, we dig out manuscripts from the ground and we're able to get all these copies of all the New Testaments from different eras and periods. And we can compare those copies in order to figure out what is kind of reflective of the original text. And so a lot of the later manuscripts we have of the Gospel of John include verse 4, but our earliest manuscripts don't include verse 4. And so Bible translators have decided to omit that, but footnote it. 
Now, I think that's probably the right call. Our earliest manuscripts don't include it. But I want us to look at what verse 4 says because I do think verse 4 provides some commentary to the religious superstition that was going on of the day. All right, so look at ver- this is verse, what verse 4 was that's omitted from your Bible. So let's just do this in context. So verse 3 uh, let me go to verse 3. would say, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 4, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, what's interesting about this is that makes verse 7 make a little bit more sense because Jesus goes to the man who was paralyzed, do you want to be healed? And his reply in verse seven is, well, I can't because I can't get into the pool and no one will help me get into the pool when it's being stirred. I can't be first inside the pool. Now, I think that it's right for us to omit verse four. I think that uh, in verse 4, there's a few reasons why verse 4 shouldn't be in our Bibles. One, our earliest manuscripts don't include it. And two, it's just inconsistent with the way angels work and the way with God works. It feels like it was added in later. All right? Because, you know, at what point in Scripture do you see where if someone's first, God's going to be the one to heal them? It just doesn't make sense. But what it does help us to understand is there was probably a superstition of the day that when this particular pool was stirred, this was probably an artesian well. So in Jerusalem, this was a common thing. Artesian wells were these wells, and they had a pipe go down to the water table underground. And when the water table filled, the pressure would cause that water to come up and fill the pool and stir it up. And most people probably didn't understand the engineering of that. And, and it just kind of happens automatically, and it feels and looks miraculous. And so they're assuming, well, this must be an angel doing this. And a superstition was developed that if you're the first to get in the pool, you will be healed. And this, I think, reflects the mindset of this man as we see in verse 7. He's thinking, well, of course I want to be healed but I can't get into the pool. I can't do what I need to do in order to be able to get healed. I I believe God can heal me. I just can't do what needs to be done in order to make it happen. And it makes me wonder, like, how do we have similar superstitions? You know, have we turned our quiet time into something like this? Like, I believe that if I have my quiet time every day, I read my Bible, I pray, I, I do that for an hour, I'm faithful, I don't skip a day, I, I stick to my Bible reading plan, I don't have any skipped days or my check marks. Like, have we turned that more into a superstition that says, if I do this, then I kind of court the favor of God? And of course, I don't know, I, I don't know about you, I've... I struggle with discipline, <laughs> so, and I'm the pastor, so I guess it's only the disciplined strong among us that can court the favor of God versus seeing the quiet time as not 
a formula to get God's attention, but God inviting us into relationship with him as he ministers to us. It's far different. Or have we turned this, what we're doing right now, into a superstition, right? I got to go to church. I got to be close to God. And so I got I to gotta be here. And the more I'm here and the people who are committed here and the people who are here who are here every single Sunday, those are the people that court the favor of God versus this being something we're invited into to gather with the saints of God, to be encouraged and to sing and to be reminded of the gospel because it's good for our souls. I mean, it's, it's very different. What superstitions do we have that are just kind of right in front of us and we don't realize that we've applied a mindset to those things of if I can be strong enough and consistent enough and disciplined enough, I will unlock God's favor and blessing. If we keep going in our text, verse 8, I think Jesus demonstrates a different mindset. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. It, did not, sorry. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Why does Jesus say that? Like, oh, you're well. Awesome, sin no more. I, I, scholars wrestle with this. Like, why does Jesus say that? Some would say, well, this guy is clearly violating the Sabbath regulations as the Jews have already pointed out. And so maybe that's what Jesus means. Like, hey, stop, stop what you're doing. Like, put your, your mat down. But that makes no sense because Jesus just said, take up your bed and walk. So scratch that option. Another option that I've read some scholars say is that, well, maybe the, this man sinned in a particular way, and that's why he's paralyzed, that it was kind of a divine punishment upon him, and Jesus is saying, all right, hey, you've been healed, now be good for now on. Um, but I don't think that works either, because in John chapter 9, and we're going to actually do this passage as a part of this series in a few weeks. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come up on a blind man, and the disciples straight up ask Jesus, what did this man do and what did his parents do that caused this person to be blind? Like, what sin did they commit? They assumed that his blindness was a result of his sin, and Jesus is like, no, that's not the case. So that seems inconsistent with the Gospel of John. So I, no, scratch, scratch that option. Here's the reason why I think Jesus says it. I think Jesus is challenging the religious mindset of the day. If you go to John chapter 8, just a few chapters later, the Pharisees catch this woman in the middle of committing adultery. And so they drag this woman before Jesus, of course, didn't drag the man, but drag the woman before Jesus. 
and said, Jesus, the law says we should stone her. What do you say? They're testing Jesus. And we all know the story. Jesus kind of mysteriously starts to doodle or write something in the dirt. And he says, you know, whoever of you is without sin, be the first to cast the stone, right? And they all walk away because they know they can't do that. And then he looks at the woman and says, hey, where, where is everyone? She says, they all walked away. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. He forgives her. And then says, and sin no more. I think the challenge to the mindset is this. It's a flipping of the order. See, the default religious mindset says, what do I need to do? How strong do I need to be? How disciplined do I need to be? How consistent do I need to be? What do I need to do to court God's favor? And I think Jesus is showing a different order. I'm going to graciously give you my favor and then lead you into a new life without sin. I'm going to graciously lavish my love upon you. I'm gonna heal you. I'm gonna forgive you. I'm gonna bless you. And then I'm gonna lead you into a life of righteousness. He flips the order. That's what the Gospel of John is doing right here. And that's the grace of Jesus Christ. And we follow and we obey him because we know that he's good and his commands are for our joy. This is what we see Jesus has done in our life. He has come to us Even while we were still sinning, he goes to the cross to forgive us of our sins. He rises from the grave to secure our eternity. He says, this is yours if you would just trust in me and then follow me. It's not the other way around. It's not, here's all the tenets you have to follow and then you can unlock my favor. No, he flips it. It's a different mindset. But here's the thing. We know that. Most of us do. Maybe you're here, and this is the first time you're hearing something like that, but I think for most of us, we know that message. We talk about it every single week. It's knowledge in our heads, but do we have a mindset that lives in the freedom of it? See, Jesus isn't just healing someone right here. He's giving a sign to us about who he is and what God sent him to do. So let's keep going in our passage. Look at verses 15 to 17. It says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Hey, I found the guy. That's the guy. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things, plural, get back to that, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. You know, it's interesting. Jesus has a habit of doing these things on the Sabbath day. I mean, if you read the Gospels, it feels like over and over and over again, we get this story. Jesus heals someone, sees someone, 
uh, uh, whatever it is, ministers to someone, and the Jews are upset because he did it on the Sabbath day. And we even see there in verse 16 where it says, he keeps doing these things. Like this is a recurring thing Jesus is doing on the Sabbath day. Oh, it's very, very intentional. Jesus is giving a sign. You know, the Sabbath, you can read about it in the Old Testament. One day a week, God wanted his people to rest, take the day off. Don't do anything. Don't even gather food. Don't cook food. Just, just rest on that day. If you go to Exodus chapter 16, you can really read the heart behind this. This is when uh, God provides manna for his people as they're in the wilderness. And he says, I'm going to rain manna down, all right, six days of the week. But on the seventh day, I'm not going to rain manna down. So on the sixth day, gather double so that you have food on the seventh day. And the people won't even follow that regulation. But the, the, the whole point of it is this. God wants us to have a day once a week where we are reminded that he will provide for our every need and we can just rest and receive it. And that's hard. It's hard for us to do. It was hard for the people in the Old Testament to do. And there's all of these regulations around how to keep the Sabbath. You couldn't even take up your bed and walk, I guess. And the whole point of the Sabbath was trust God that he can provide your every need. And Jesus is giving a sign here that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he will become our Sabbath rest. He says that in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. I, right now, as Jesus is in the middle of his life, he is literally doing the work that we need to be accomplished for us to have blessing, favor, relationship with God. Oh, there is some truth too. Hey, there is some stuff you need to do in order for God to save you and rescue you. There is stuff that you need to do to have the blessing and the favor of God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus does it for you. He's doing the work. He is the one who's providing. Therefore, he is our Sabbath rest. I don't, I don't have to do anything to get God's favor because Jesus did it. And so in the same way, I don't need to go gather my bread in the wilderness. I can just sit here and receive the grace of Jesus because he has provided all that is needed to be made right with God. We can rest from our religious and spiritual work because Jesus has already done the work and provided for us everything that is needed for us to be blessed and healed and saved. And my question is, is that our mindset do we live our lives knowing that Jesus has already, once and for all, done all of the work that is needed for God to be pleased and delighted in you? I was reminding myself of this 10 minutes ago as I was singing those songs. You know, just, man, 
thinking about my week, and I was distracted for most of the week, and just thinking about the sermon I'm about to preach, and just kind of feeling like, ah, God, I don't feel like I'm worthy of this, and oh, God, you know, sometimes I wish I prayed more before I preached this sermon, and, you know, I slept in too much this morning, and I wish I was up earlier so I could have prayed more before this, and all of that, and I think, I think he was saying, hey, hey, that's, that's the default religious mindset, And Jesus got nailed to the cross so that you don't have to live by that one. He got nailed to the cross so that you could stand there and be like, okay, I'm a child of God, and the Holy Spirit has me, and I don't got to prove anything to God today, and I get the privilege of being able to stand and deliver his word on his behalf. And God's not going to remove himself from me because I didn't pray this morning. God has provided everything already for you to be blessed and saved and healed. You might be thinking, well, what does that look like, Alan? Because I've prayed for healing and I haven't received it. There's a lot of things that I've prayed for and I don't feel blessed. I want you to see Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see what Paul writes about this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. If you trust in Christ, this is true of you. You have In your possession, every spiritual blessing. Even before he made the world, God loved and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. A holiness that he provides through Christ. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and and understanding. And so here's what I want you to hear from that this morning is this. If you are in Christ you will experience healing. Physical healing to your body. Now, I can't promise you that will happen this side of heaven. God can certainly do that. But I want you to know that what's been given to you, what's in your possession, is the reality that you will, after this life, be resurrected into God's kingdom You will have a body that is completely restored. You will experience that and enjoy it. Because you've been given every spiritual blessing. You will see justice. You will experience one day in your life, and I can't promise it will be this side of heaven, but you will experience one day in your life all injustice made right. 
if you torture yourself with constant negative thoughts and self-hatred and self-consciousness and comparing yourself to other people, and if it's debilitating, you will experience a day where those voices are gone for good. We have been given every spiritual blessing. And I could go on and on and on. And James says that our life is but a whisper compared to what we will experience in God's kingdom and the mindset that we are privileged to have is that God is delighted to shower his blessings on us because Jesus has done all that's required and we can rest in him and we can trust in him. I don't wanna overlook the fact that the man that Jesus chose to give this sign through was a man who felt unseen and insignificant. A man who felt like everyone overlooked him. No one would help him. Even if he did have that mindset of if I could just get into that pool, then I would be healed. No one would help him. He was unseen and insignificant. And Jesus has a habit of finding unseen, insignificant people and saying, I see you. And I want to move into your life and I want to provide healing and provision and blessing into your life. And I want to use you as a sign to everyone that this is what I am here to do. And I know that many of you feel unseen and insignificant. Does God even care? Is he even with me in this hardship? Is he even with me in what I'm going through right now? I don't feel like I have received every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit this morning would help us change our mindset from one that says, what do I need to do to just get God to see me and move in my life? To a mindset that says that God has already and is delighted to move into your life by and in and through Jesus Christ. And he has given you every spiritual blessing And although we continue to experience hardship in this life, we are guaranteed eternal life with him. So what I want to do is I want to end our time this morning meditating on Psalm 145 for just a few moments. Because this change of mindset that I'm talking about. That's a spiritual work. That's not, you know, you can't do some brain exercises and change it. (laughs) This is a a work in our hearts that the Holy Spirit needs to do. And I I just want to have some time reading God's word together and inviting the Holy Spirit to do that work. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to I want everyone, if you're able, just to sit in your seat, be in a comfortable position, and and close your eyes. And I'm going to read a section of Psalm 145. And I'm going to read it three times. But every single time that I read it, I'm going to give you some instructions on how to meditate on it. And we're going to sit in some silence 
band's going to play a little bit of music just to, to kind of help calm the, the nerves in the, in the room. But we're going to sit in silence and just let God's word minister to us. And so with your eyes closed, as I read through just a few verses in Psalm 145, I want to know, I want you, I don't want to know, I want you to think, what, what image pops up in your mind? Just what, what do you see? And if you get distracted as I read or as we sit in a minute of silence, it's okay. Just kind of redirect your thoughts back. Just want to know what image pops into your head. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. I read it again, I want to know which part is hard for you to trust in and believe. Where might your mindset challenge what is read here? The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him 
to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. What do you need to take with you this week? What do you need to remember? The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them.